0: This podcast is brought to you by the Albany Public Library Main Branch and the generosity of listeners like you. What is a podcast? God, Daddy, these people talk as much as you do. (laughs) Razeeb Khan's Unsupervised Learning. Hi guys, you know that genetics plays a huge role in our health, and more people are using genetic testing to determine risk for diseases like cancer for themselves and their kids than ever before. So I want to tell you about Orchid. It's the only company that does whole genome testing for embryos, testing before your child is born. If you're doing IVF, this is a clear choice now, because now you can reduce risk for thousands of single gene disorders, including heritable forms of autism, pediatric cancers, and birth defects. Check them out at OrchidHealth.com. Hey everybody! This is Razib with the Unsupervised Learning Podcast, and I am here today with Chris Rufo, who, uh, like unlike some of my guests, probably does not need much of an introduction. But uh, you know, I will uh, introduce Chris Rufo a little bit. Um, he has a book out, uh, which is what we're going to mostly be talking about: America's Cultural Revolution. I think the title is pretty straightforward, but uh, some of the details uh, within the book might not be as straightforward to some of you out there. So hopefully, uh, there will be some knowledge being thrown down, uh, Chris was also a filmmaker uh, many, many years ago, um, or maybe not that many years ago, but in the scale of his life, probably. Um, and he has also been an activist. And over the last three years, he's really blown up, uh, become a figure, so to speak. Um, whether you think it's positive or negative, uh, you know, Chris has made a difference in the world. I got to say that. And I will say, um, I think, Chris, like we first encountered each other in the spring of 2020. you're just some obscure guy. Um, dropping into my DMs, asking what was going on, and uh, <laughs> you know, now here you are. So you never know uh, when you rub up against greatness, right? So um, yeah, Chris, um, I actually want to ask you really quickly before we start. You were a filmmaker, um, you know, you're the son of attorneys, um, you know, uh, and now you're doing this, okay, it's a, it's a big difference. So you're, you're, you have a creative artistic side,
1: um, and I don't think people think of that all the time. Um, why
0: did you want to go into film?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, looking back and having the benefit of hindsight, I wanted to go into film after college, really to get out into the world, to travel. Um, and, and I think, you know, looking back, it's quite possible that I, I I was not, uh, ideally suited to be a film director, but, but was, uh, uh, was seeing it more as a vehicle for seeing the world. And so in that sense, it was very successful. Um, I got a chance to travel all over the world and spend you know, a number of years abroad and uh, meet interesting people, get out into the field, like really um, see things from a perspective um, that has been, I think, really beneficial to me now that I've changed over into a new career and uh, and turned to, more towards politics, towards writing, towards this activism, um, and other efforts. Well, so you went to Xinjiang, right? Yes.
0: Hey, can you talk about that really quickly? Because that's like yeah, but...
1: out, of, out of, you know... The Out of pocket, yeah, yeah. I, I one of the films that I did. I spent a year in Xinjiang Province, China. So this is the you know very famous uh, Uyghur majority province. Um, I did a documentary there about uh, Uyghurs and Han Chinese, told through the story of this uh, uh, baseball team, which was kind of a novelty, and um, it was really an amazing experience. I got to understand Chinese politics and culture. Uh, I got to understand. Uh, Uyghur, Uyghur politics and culture and history, Um, and uh, you know it's it's about as far away as you can get. Uh, You know, and traveling all through the province and and to the small villages and towns, and so that was a you know kind of an interesting experience. It's formative in one way for me personally, but in another way, it's kind of low utility. Uh, You know, there's there's not really much uh, to do or to or or to say or to there's not really much market for knowledge about the Uyghurs, um, unfortunately. Well, there wasn't, um, but there wasn't. you think that there is, I, that'd be a, that'd be a good question. I don't know. Well, I mean, I would think, um,
0: you know, I think part of the issue is, this is obviously not part of the, you know, and we'll, we'll get to the book obviously, but yeah, uh, you know, over the last five to 10 years, I think we've seen a, a change in the American elite in terms of what China's going to be from China, America to great power competition. And so, yeah. you know, during the, you know, you're, I'm a little older than you, but during the, um, During the Cold War, there was like a whole, you know, field of Russian studies and Sovietologists. They knew all sorts of obscure things about, let's just call it the great enemy, you know? And so if China's going to be the great enemy, um, we got to know all about it. And so I do think that um, having obscure ethnographic knowledge is probably going to be relevant. I mean, who, I mean, you know, who cares that like people in, you know, Guangdong speak a different dialect than people in Shanghai? Well, you know what? It might be relevant. might be relevant now. All these sorts of like little things. You never know what kind of information is going to be relevant? You know, True. I think Um. I think one thing that people need to realize is, you know, we over-optimize sometimes in terms of professional and intellectual um, studies. And, you know, I mean, just like looking at your background, it's a little bit peripatetic, frankly, you know, like you go gone from thing to thing, but look where you are now. And um, maybe you wouldn't be here if you hadn't sampled, uh, you know, different, you know, just kind of like things in life, you know, like maybe you would be a CPA somewhere. Maybe, I mean, maybe the Chris Refo who's a CPA would be, uh, you know, living on Mercer Island and doing very well for himself. Maybe when m- making a, a difference in the world, you know, what, you know what I'm trying to say?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. I think that it's one of those things I think is quite interesting. You look back at your, you're, you're living your life in the present and sometimes the answers are, aren't always there. And then you look back at your life and some of those experiences or desires or, um, uh, you know, d- directions that didn't make sense at the time start to cohere into something. And so, um, you know, I think, yeah, you get a little bit older, you, you spend your 20s, you know, experimenting, pushing, working, you know, failing, uh, succeeding, you know, fighting. I mean, uh, there's there's all sorts of drama in that stage of life. And I think that, um, you know, now that it's started to stabilize, I, I just turned 39 uh, you know, a couple of days ago. And uh, starting to stabilize and starting to make a little bit more sense. And I think that perhaps one area that has been helpful, and even in writing this book, is that so many conservatives are logical, um, uh, mathematical, empirical. They're structuring, you know, syllogistic arguments. They're they're thinking then in, in in kind of dry intellectual terms. And um, what I tried to bring to uh, the to the book and to all my work is. A sense of drama, conflict, aesthetics, um, telling a story, kind of building out a narrative, and I think that, uh, in in some ways, that as the thing has helped distinguish what I'm doing now.
0: Yeah, so I'm going to say, uh, you know, we mentioned this like, a little bit before we started recording. Um, you know, the topic, uh, you know, these left wing intellectual movements and revolutionaries, a long march to the institutions. And this, uh, you know, you're you're surfacing it right now. It's becoming a thing um and you've been talking about it for the last year or so uh, i i'm probably familiar with it i've read about critical theory and its intellectual history you know and all that stuff uh so uh there were there was some color in here that i didn't know but in general i knew the general outline. but a lot of people are gonna be surprised by this you know but you know we forget really quickly um in the late 2000s after 2008 In particular, there was a whole period of interest in Saul Alinsky and all of these left-wing radical movements that a lot of right-wingers actually took an interest in. A lot of the activism Mm -hmm. uh, was driven by let us learn from the left. And it's interesting how you're talking about it again. And, you know, I mean, your career, your prominence illustrates that there's a need for this. And somehow that faded again um, and it was forgotten so quickly. So it's interesting. And, you know, as you're um, talking about this and as I'm reading your book, um, it, I do think in a way, um, yes, yeah, so you are, you're learning from what you've learned in terms of how they move through the institutions, how they use narrative, story, uh, drama, uh, dramatic effect, uh, rhetorical exaggeration, uh, just all, all you are using uh, the master's tools, you know, to go at the master's house, so to speak. I mean, that's what I was thinking as I was reading, and I'm just like. I can tell. I can tell. Like reading this, that uh, that you you're learning. You learned yourself, you know, in terms of you're like, oh, you know, because I've seen um, as you've evolved the last three years, and you know, um, <clears throat> you're not writing um, dry reports for AEI, you know, because I, I I know what you're talking about in terms of like certain type of like conservative intellectual, you know, like let's talk about the Social Security uh, spend and you know the impending you know fiscal crisis and all that stuff. And that's great, and that's necessary. Uh, Just like, you know, if you're a liberal, you know, Brookings needs to write, uh, you know, 1,000-page healthcare white paper. That needs to be done. But then you also need kind of the poets. Uh, You need the, you know, kind of like visionaries. Uh, You need the dreamers. Uh, That's all a spectrum. And so I think that's what you're alluding to here. In terms of your book, um, I know Richard Hanania. Kanani has got a book out um, kind of on a similar topic. Actually, I actually haven't read his book, but so it's more about the legal framework. This book is more of a cultural history, wouldn't you say?
1: Yeah, for sure. I think that, you know, I, I spoke with Richard on his podcast and I had a chance to, you know, pre read the book and blurb the book. And he looks at it from a legal and institutional perspective. So, what are the dynamics of the legal forms and processes that stemming from the, the the Civil Rights Act and, and related legislation and regulation, and how does it create the uh, institutional apparatus under woke. And so, I mean, I, I think that's certainly important, and I think it's very complementary to what I'm doing, which is a narrative history of the, the main figures who established the, the key ideas, the key techniques in the late 60s, early 70s, and then documenting the long march to the institutions, and then showing the culmination of this you know, 50 year March in, in, in some on the ground reporting in 2020. And so it's reportage, it's cultural history. Um, it's some intellectual portraiture, some kind of biographical treatments. Um, and so what I tried to do is create something of a three dimensional, um, picture, uh, a three dimensional story, but also something that you could sink your teeth into narratively because look, a lot of people, um, are, 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 are even, even people who love to read, Um, cannot get through um, something that doesn't have a a character, doesn't have, you know, conflict, doesn't have heroes and villains, doesn't have those basic narrative structures, which I think, you know, I even got criticism from the left. They say, well, Rufo doesn't make any uh, explicit arguments. He doesn't show why these ideas are bad. He doesn't make any uh, strong intellectual rebuttals. And I'm kind of laughing at saying, well, yeah, I'm telling a story and the, the the rebuttal of the, uh, the my case is implicit in the narratives and so I'm showing what these ideas lead to. I'm showing the limitations of these ideas I'm showing the corruption of the institutions and so that that is my argument. the argument is implicit but a lot of you know PhD social science, political theory types you know they want me to, to rebut point by point the critical theories which I just think is uh, you know, Certainly, someone should do it, you know, some have done it, but I think gives, you know, relatively less value, actually, than than relatively more.
0: Yeah, um, so in terms of the book, uh, you know, as you said, it's, you know, it's got chapters, they're quite focused on, uh, you know, in- individuals, uh, often like Angela Davis, Herbert Marcuse, et cetera. Et cetera. And yeah, it, it is narrative, it's a narrative description, it pulls you along. I will say as I was reading it, um, one thing that I was feeling was like, okay, well, when am I going to get to Davis? Like you could tell that you had a narrative and the narrative had a progression and that progression kind of matured into the current period, right? Like you were, you were starting yeah. kind of like the prologue of the current period, the 1960s and you were moving. So, I mean, if that was your intent, you did a good job. I think it was, it was, it was clear. Um, one thing that I would say, you know, and I'm a little older than you, but not that much older than you. Uh, but, um. You know our perception of the '60s are you know like let's say zenial you know geriatric millennials younger gen We don't remember the '60s and early '70s. And one thing that I will say, um, and I get your take on this. People that lived through it, they they have told me, you know, you guys get rose rose tinted, uh, you know, like sepia um, <laughs> colored perceptions in these like films of Woodstock and stuff like that. I don't want to get into the details. Like I've talked some some of the the darker details of stuff that happened in Woodstock that I was told by, you know, people that were there uh in, in adulthood. Um, and, you know, the late sixties and the early seventies, sixty-five to seventy five, maybe sixty-eight to seventy, whatever. This is the late seventies. Those were, I mean, you know, there's a book I think called Days of Rage. Um, there's a lot of chaos. There's a lot of, you know, there's like massive uh, explosion of crime. Like we had a minor boomlet. Um, over, during the you know 2020, and which you know, give reasons why we had the minor boomlet, but um, you know that was nothing compared to the change between say 64 and 70, which is six years. Uh, this is across someone's adolescence, possibly. It went from a very 1950s America to in 1970 the crime rate was crazy, and yeah. so people underwent like these radical, radical changes. And I've talked to people that were you know, in their 20s or late teens at the period. And they just thought they, I mean, that's why, like, the Manson family happened and they thought the world was going to end because they just thought there's going to be a change every year. Like, everything's going to, like, radically transform. And now, I mean, we are having changes, but really, uh, compared to that period, history kind of stopped around 1980, and it's been a much more gradual change. You know, there's been technological changes and stuff like that. But our culture just underwent a literal revolution. Your Your book is America's Cultural Revolution. It underwent a cultural revolution in a descriptive sense uh, between sixty-five and seventy. So, you know, sixty-five is much closer in many ways to fifty or forty-five than it is to seventy. And um, I mean, what do you, what do you, what do you say to that? Like, how would you communicate it? Um, how did you try it? in the book? I think to the contemporary audience, like many of us who don't remember it uh, firsthand.
1: Yeah, I, I think you're you're right. And and that's really why I bookend the, you know, I, I create the bookends or the the kind of time limitations that, you know, really from 68 forward, although obviously talking about people's early life experiences, you go back further than that. But, um, yeah, in, in a sense, you're right. And 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 so, some have criticized the book to say, oh, you say it's America's cultural revolution that's overstated. It's nothing you know, it's not a, a cultural revolution of any kind. And then but 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 to your point you actually go back and you go into reading the pamphlets and the literature and the the kind of manifestos of 68 69 70 and they're not talking about cultural revolution. Cultural revolution is actually a lowering of the ambition. They're talking about political revolution against the American constitutional government. And so they really truly believed at that time. You read Eldridge Cleaver, you read Angela Davis, you read um, uh, a number of other kind of Black Panther parties, Black Liberation Army uh, soldiers they're writing um, we are going to violently overthrow the government here is our kind of Gramscian or really kind of Che Guevara Guevaran theory of revolution they said it's a FOCO plan so you, you, you create spectacular images of revolutionary violence assassinating police officers bombing the US capital uh, robbing banks and taking hostages uh, demanding the, the, the liberation from uh, the corrupt American society. And if we do that, we create a spectacular wave of violence. We will, we will rally uh, uh, in an organic manner uh, the entire society to revolt against the government. I mean, they thought that they could, they were making actual plans. When we take over the United States government, this is what we're going to do. And you could argue for sure that it was delusional. You could argue that it was naive. You could argue that it was, had no basis in reality. But the fact that enough people believed it and were willing to act on it and were willing to communicate it in such direct terms signaled to me that there was a perception among the broader society and the reaction from the government, the reaction from Hoover, the reaction from Nixon, where people had a fear this could really happen. And in 2020, obviously, we had people taking a knee to BLM. We had people posting the black square. We had people rioting in the streets. But I don't think that it was as a profound kind of revolutionary ambition as it was in the past. In a way, it was a cynical ambition. defund the police was really as far as they were, were dreaming, which is a disaster, of course. But, um, but I, I think that one of the lessons that I learned writing the book was that the left has had n- no new idea since 1968. They were all fully baked by that time. Um, and and the right needs to really understand the origins of these ideas, understand the range of discourse objects that they've created. Uh, if if we have any hope of of turning the turning the country around,
0: yeah, I mean, you know, conflict sometimes is great for podcasts, but I pretty much agree with you there. I mean, I've said the same things. I think you probably have seen me. No, no new ideas. I mean, the left wants to go back to the late sixties. Uh, the right wants to go back either to the fifties or the nineteen eighties. You know, make America great again. Um, you know, I mean, Ronald or, you know, Donald Trump is a creature of uh, the 1980s. You know, I just like so when you with-
1: think, I, I, I'd be curious what you think. I mean, when, 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 when Trump says "make America great again," what's the reference? I mean, what is the the what is the point of reference that that he you you think he's desiring a return to or is it just an abstract desire that's filled in by his voters
0: no i I think i think he wants to i think he and his voters to some extent um and his voters quote unquote i mean we're talking boomers here um they they do want to return to the 80s uh where you know america kind of resurrected itself from the brink in their perception which you know whatever i mean i like the 80s like i remember it it was great um the issue is just like you can't turn back time at this point a lot of things yeah. have changed and i think that's why a lot of us who are younger whether we're liberal or conservative whatever your ideology um we're kind of frustrated people a lot of people are frustrated because the boomers are so demographically um uh, they're just they're not going they're not leaving the the field and so you have these liberal boomers who are clearly as you're outlining here resurrecting a vision you know the dream of the 60s you know and then you have a uh, you know the conservative boomers and they want to go back to an America that just doesn't exist anymore, um, in a world that doesn't exist anymore, I mean, you know, as you get older, as we get older, everyone understands the appeal of that. Everyone understands the appeal of nostalgia, and you know, wanting to go back, but you can't. But I'm um, speaking of going back, uh, doing a segue. I want to talk about Marcuse. Um, am I pronouncing that right? I actually never. I know, yeah. Not, okay. So he's he's the old one, uh, so to speak, in your narrative, and he is um, he's a, a pretty critical figure um i think like what was it? his essay repressive tolerance is that what it was mm-hmm. uh, Marcuse is the guy for people out there who is used basically to justify um suppressing speech in the interests of promoting liberty and freedom if that makes sense which sounds super weird but you know there is a logic i mean when you read um when you read critical you know so the critical theory cultural marxism um can you talk about what these are especially cultural marxism since that's the older older form can you talk about what it is and how it's differentiated from the traditional materialist marxism or the Soviet
1: Union democratic centralism a little bit so that people are clear
0: this has been a huge yeah. thing to talk about so
1: yeah Mar- marcuse is really the the pivotal figure here and so you know to his credit marcuse was an orthodox marxist you know uh, in 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 germany he participated in uh, you know kind of revolutionary politics in his time as a young man uh, became a kind of orthodox Marxist. Actually, in his early scholarship, he sought to revive some of Marx's early writings, showing that Marx had a vision of humanity that wasn't you know, as, as hemmed in by kind of uh, materialist, dialectical materialism, um, some scholarship there. But when he came to the US, so really after World War II, um, he wrote a book called Soviet Marxism, in which he uh, really brutalized the Soviet Union, said that it had devolved into... Uh, Kind of, you know, uh, bureaucratic tyranny. He criticized the Soviet Union in '55, so very early on, when many of the uh, Marxists were still cheerleading the Soviet Union. Um, And and then he also realized in the West and Western Europe, but you know, even more so in the United States, the old Marxist vision of proletarian revolution against the capitalist class was a dead end.
0: If you want to listen to the rest of the podcast, you know where to subscribe.